The Large Nerdron Collider podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. Everybody, welcome to the Large Nerdron Collider podcast, the podcast that's all about the geeky things happening in the world around us and how excited we are about them. I'm Ariel Kastian, and with me as always is my super awesome, super original co-host, Jonathan Strickland. Hey, Ariel, I got, I got an original idea. I'm going to ask you a question. You're a bad guy in a Scooby-Doo cartoon. What sort of abandoned structure or location is your home base of operations? Uh, functional yet, uh, not inhabited cold stone creamery. Okay, that's, that's a good answer. I like it. Yeah, you're just like, <gasps> the marble slab, it's still cold. Like, yes. It's a, it's a nice twist on the it's still warm trope. Mm-hmm. I like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. All right, you? so we know. Oh, me. Uh, an abandoned Renaissance festival site. I like that we're, yeah, we're both like, yeah, it's abandoned. Yeah, well, it has <laughs> to be. It has to be, because that's like, that's the trope, right? That's always yeah. the old abandoned amusement park or the old abandoned train station. So, so my reasoning is because I just want to be able to make ice cream to fuel my villainy. Uh, what is your reason to be behind a. Uh, because it, at a Renaissance I, I love Renaissance festivals if it weren't for all those dang people. Uh, that is not true, sir. The best part of the Renaissance festival is the people, because otherwise you can't entertain them and be the center it's of true, attention. It's true, and you and I have spent more than enough time on a more or less abandoned Renaissance festival site for rehearsals and stuff, where it's yes. just the cast, and it does get creepy. But... That's uh, that's enough of all that. Now we know where our our villainous Scooby-Doo characters would reside. Let us move on to what we have to talk about today. Yeah. And the first thing we want to talk about, and almost the most important thing to me, is WandaVision. Because WandaVision came out last week, and Jonathan and I both watched it. So the first two episodes, we should say. The first two episodes. So Jonathan... Uh, in a as not as spoilery, spoilery as you can way, what did you think of the show? I absolutely adored it. I wholeheartedly loved it. Um, I loved it both for the the obvious love and affection the writers and everybody have mm-hmm. for classic sitcoms, American sitcoms. And I loved it for all the weird and slightly sinister, creepy stuff that gets woven in. Again, no spoilers, but they're I mean, the first two episodes. I think it's safe to say f- fall way harder on the sitcom love and corny humor than the creepy stuff. The creepy stuff just kind mm-hmm. of is there occasionally, but that just makes the creepy stuff stand out more. And that's what it made me really, really enjoy it. What about you? What did you think? Um, I also absolutely loved it. I actually spent the entire weekend saying, why are there not more episodes of this for me to watch? Maybe I just want to go back and watch the first two again, because it was, um, you know, we know that something is up in the show. You know that from the trailers. Uh, and and like you said, there was some sinister stuff that happens throughout. Uh, but it was just overall very uplifting and fun. And it was just fun. Yes. It was just a, a fun show. And... I feel like so many shows in the past five, 
10 years have just tried to be gritty and dark and and graphic that I just really appreciated almost the wholesomeness of of this mystery comedy. Uh, and and I just have to say, like, Elizabeth Olsen has floored me with how well she embodies that classic sitcom leading lady uh, kind of kind of spirit. She mm-hmm. nailed it in such a great way, like that interesting balance between being, uh, you know, sort of the straight man, but also genuinely funny in her own right. And the supporting cast of that show mm-hmm. is amazing. I I agree. I agree. Unlike Fuller House or something where they're trying to bank on old kitsch, uh, this show just really takes old nostalgia and makes it feel natural. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. make it feel forced. You know, Paul Bettany also did a, an amazing job, you know. Yes, rivaling some Dick Van Dyke in there. <laughs> the, the, yes, there's there are actual direct references to things like the Dick Van Dyke show and a little bit of Lucille Ball in that first episode. And I don't know for a fact, but at least the way the first two episodes play out, I suspect we're going to see almost a chain of different sitcom styles. We know there's one other one because it was in the trailer, right? Mm-hmm. There was one that looks very much Partridge Family, Brady Bunch-ish. Uh, but I expect we'll see maybe a couple of others, hopefully, before the season ends, because I am absolutely digging it. And yeah. uh, and it's also fun in that they have customized uh, openings for each episode, too, right? Like mm-hmm. the opening sequence for episode two is different from the opening sequence for episode one and reflects the kind of sitcom that that episode embodies, which is really cool. It also makes me really curious how they're going to go forward because we know in the movies vision has died. Yes. That's not a spoiler. He's, he's he's really most sincerely dead. And now he he's back. And I, I worry Jonathan that it's not going to stay so fun and wholesome. (laughs) No, this is going to end in a very sad way, but you see, they could, they can spin it. They can, they can keep vision around. They can do this. Uh, (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, it would be great if you could keep him around because he, he is such a genuinely he is. fun character. Listen, if they can make three movies out of The Hobbit. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> well, that was my clever way to segue. Oh, uh, oh right, right, right. <laughs> so uh, speaking of The Hobbit, uh, Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, all that, there is a Lord of the Rings show happening yeah, eventually. Really more of a Middle Earth show. Yeah, yeah, it's going coming out for Amazon. We knew about this. Turns out it's going to be the most expensive TV show in all of history with a five hundred million dollar budget, which is insane. insane. It also has a five season commitment, so I, I'm not sure whether that budget is per season or for all five. Yeah, or for all five. Well, and it's already um, been renewed for season two without a single episode yeah. of season one having come out. But that is still a huge budget. You know, they're filming in New Zealand and they, like everybody else, kind of got uh, sidelined by the pandemic. Yeah. But, but of course, New Zealand's in much better shape than most of the world. So, yeah. Yeah. And apparently we've been waiting for this for three years. And I must have put that out of my mind because I forgot about it until I'm pretty, now. I'm pretty sure we covered this when LNC was still going back in 2017. Probably. And then I forgot about it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, and this show is going to be set during the second age of Middle Earth. And if you don't know 
how the history of Middle Earth works. Everything you see in The Hobbit, everything you see in Lord of the Rings, all of that takes place at the end of the Third Age of Middle Earth. Mm -hmm. And so this is 3000 years before that. Um, It's when Sauron is the big bad for the first time around. You remember the beginning of Lord of the Rings has uh, uh, Isildur chopping off Sauron's fingers with Narsal, the sword, the shards of Narsal. And yeah. uh, that is essentially the the denouement, the end scene of uh, <laughs> of of the second age of Middle Earth. So this is going to take place during that, and we suspect that a lot of it is going to take place on Numenor, the island where uh, uh, the 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 sort of elevated members of humans mm-hmm. live. That's Aragorn is descended from them. So yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm excited about this. I when the Hobbit movies came out, one, I, I was like, why are there three of them? This is a, a short story. Yeah. Not a short story, but a shorter story. Mm-hmm. Uh and and two, like, there is so much world that Tolkien built that I, I want to explore. So this has given me the opportunity. I'm I'm cautiously optimistic about this one. Uh it if it fails, it will not be because it was cheap. Yes. Yes, I am also cautiously optimistic about the Doogie Hauser reboot, which is not a sentence I ever thought I'd be saying. Yeah, uh, so this was one that had escaped my attention until recently, where we learned more about the uh, the the new version of Doogie Hauser, which will not be Doogie Hauser. It's Mm-mm. it's Doogie Kamealoha, MD. So uh, one. Now we're following a person of Hawaiian descent and two, that person happens to be female. So we've mm-hmm. got a young woman doogie and uh, I think this is awesome. I actually really kind of dig this idea and I'm very uh, interested to see where it goes. Um, and uh, I also hope that they play the theme song on a ukulele and I hope it's the, the, the dee, same dee, theme dee, song. Dee, dee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just do. hope that she types up all her thoughts on a really, 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 really old computer. <laughs> or I, I think it'll have to be like a smartphone. Um, yeah, it's Peyton oh. Elizabeth Lee who is who is playing the title role. You know, I went back and watched uh, the first couple of episodes of Doogie Howser again recently. Mm-hmm. They are deal with some more adult uh, issues than I thought they would. Oh, yeah. I was like, they aren't doing this in this episode, are they? they what are they doing? I can't. I watched this as a child. Um. I mean, it was but that was the whole point, right? Was that here? here is a person who is incredibly intelligent, but lacks worldly experience. And yeah. and how how the difference between intelligence and wisdom uh, needs to be understood so that you don't just assume someone who's really intelligent is wise or Mm -hmm. that someone who is wise is, you know, book smart, intelligent. It's, it's the combination of those two things that is his journey. So yeah, it'll be, I'm curious to see how this one plays out. So our next story, and actually the story that is going to be um, inspiring our mashup later is about the television show, Batwoman. Yes, which has a new Batwoman. Yeah, yeah. Ruby Rose left uh, at the end of the last season, after the last season. And uh, instead of recasting her, they're just giving us a whole new character. Mm -hmm. Uh, The new Batwoman will be 
a character called Ryan Wilder. Mm-hmm. Played, played by, by Javicia Leslie. Yes. And uh, this is the, the reason why Ruby Rose left, at least in part, was that she suffered an injury during her shoots of the, the previous season of Batwoman and had to have surgery in order mm. to correct the injury. And that was part of it. But another part was just that she was kind of re-examining her goals during the, the whole lockdown period and yeah. felt like they weren't really in alignment with Batwoman. So now we've got a new Batwoman. Uh, we've already seen trailers of her. And of course, the, the show's coming out very soon. So you'll get to see her in action. Um, I love the look of her. I think that it looks Me great. Too. You know, the fact that she's adjusted the cowl and everything. Um, and hopefully this will be the change that Batwoman needs to really get its, you know, get up and running because a lot of people have said that the Batwoman series so far has not quite met expectations. I, I honestly, I will say I haven't watched it because the wig looked so bad in the trailers for the first season that I, yeah. So I'm hoping that's better too, but you know, I'm, I'm excited for about, I like Batman. I'm excited for more bat person, uh, media. So I will give the second season a try. Uh, Excellent. Something I'm not, yeah, something I'm not sure if I'm going to give a try, though, is the Snyder Cut of Justice League. I was already on the fence, but now that we know it's going to be four hours long yeah. and 70 and 75% new, uh, <laughs> I don't I don't know if I can sit through that. Yeah, I um, I, I, I got to be honest with you, Ariel, when I finally watched Justice League, not once, not once in that running time did I think, gosh, I wish this would go longer. No, no, no. I mean, I will say like it was a, a fairly ho-hum storyline. I really just enjoyed Justice League for the character uh, exploration. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, Snyder has a darker vision, and so I don't even know if I'm going to like the character exploration. Yeah, no, I th I have a feeling like the f the more lighthearted, quippy stuff that we saw was very likely the contributions of Joss Whedon. It just felt mm -hmm. much more like Joss Whedon's style. Um, and yeah, that yeah, that to me tells me that I probably will not. I, I'll probably watch it if I'm being honest, but I'm not looking forward forward to it uh i think I, that it's going i almost to be feel like more I, of the same i almost feel like i have to watch it for purposes of being able to talk about it here uh the uh, and also uh it does have one thing that makes me kind of want to watch it which is in theory we're gonna get martian manhunter uh who i do very much like uh, i'm very being, curious to see how how that is handled because it's such an outlandish character well we'll have to see if that realization of the character ends up, you know, meeting your very high standards, Ariel. In the meantime, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about when adaptations are no longer really adaptations and when that's good and when that's bad. But first, let's take this quick break. We're back. So a lot of the things that we talked about in the news segment are adaptations or reboots or or the like from properties we really like. 
And sometimes they are really great, like when we get the Lord of the Rings movies, and sometimes they're not so great, like when we get the Hobbit movies. <laughs> they usually have a, a wide range of of criticism about them, in part to the fact that a lot of times when properties are adjusted for movie or television, they veer from the source material to make it a better viewing experience. Uh, so, uh, Arguably, they try to make it a better viewing experience. <laughs> it does not always work out as the aforementioned The Hobbit proves. Yes. So, uh, I mean, where do you... Let, let's start at the basic level of, of movies that are adaptations that just kind of veer away from their source material in places that don't follow the storyline exactly. We see this a lot in, you know, uh, superhero movies, for example. Sure. What are what are your thoughts of that? Be, just between staying true to the thing that you love because that's what you're going to watch, and and giving a new story. And I mean, like this this to me, it largely depends upon your experience with the material. And by that, I mean if you are someone who has never seen or read. Or, or otherwise encountered the original version of that thing, then your impression of the adaptation is likely to be very different from someone who is like a, a big fan of the source material. Um, and, you know, fans of source material are notoriously picky, uh, myself included. And that, I think, is one of the major determining factors. There are other ones as well. You mentioned superhero movies. I think superhero movies in particular, have a lot of license only because for especially the classic superhero characters, there have been so many different incarnations of those characters told in so many different styles from so many different writers and artists that you can pick and choose and it's everything's up for grabs, right? Like mm -hmm. there is a campy Batman if you wanted to go yeah. with the campy Batman route, there's the dark and gritty Batman. If you want to go that route, there's the Tim Burton route where it's kind of both like it's, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of flexibility there in other ways, like other works, there's not as much flexibility. And so one of the, the examples I put in our, our notes that I think excels as a movie and was terrible as a book is jaws. Uh, mm. Jaws is my favorite film of all time. It is, I think, a perfect movie. The book is almost unreadable. <laughs> you see, I feel that way about Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, where the only thing the movie and the book have in common is a flying car. Yeah, well, if you got rid of Hushabye Mountain, I would be all over that because that... Hushabye Mountain is the song that kills that movie for me. Kind of similar to Cheer Up Charlie and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Another example of a movie that's very different from the source material. Uh, uh, slow songs uh, kill movies is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I would wager to say in cases like Jaws or Chitty Chitty Bang Bang or even Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, depending on which iteration you're talking about. Well, I said Willy uh, Wonka, not Charlie. Fair enough. Willy Wonka, which is the Gene Wilder one. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that it is beneficial, especially in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, to um, kind of reinvigorate an old story that had some old concepts and ideas that were problematic. Yeah. No, that's that's a fair point. It's like there's stuff in that book where, you know, viewed through the lens of today, you think, wow, that that is 
that is harmful thinking. That, that is yeah. reinforcing some pretty negative stereotypes. Uh, yeah, so I think I think you're right on there. Yeah, and yet when Tim Burton redid it to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I didn't. It focused more on Willy Wonka and less on Charlie, which was odd because of the title change. Yeah, and I didn't like that adapta- that adaptation as much. And maybe it's just because it's a story I came to as a child and related to at a childlike level and didn't relate to on the candy mogul level. Well, and to be fair also for Willy Wonka, that's like, that's a movie I encountered well before I ever read Charlie and the chocolate factory. So again, that's Mm -hmm. another example of, I encountered that story in the form of its adaptation first. It's kind of like if you hear a cover song without realizing it's a cover song, you might Mm -hmm. then listen to the original and think, Oh, this isn't, this isn't what I expected because, you know, the cover has done something different to it. And you might not even like the original as much as you like the cover. That that happens a lot. It, it tends to be whatever version a person encounters first, mm-hmm. they, they imprint upon that more. Uh, I see that also with adaptations of foreign films. Like if you have seen The Ring before you saw Ringu, then you may like The Ring more. But people who saw mm-hmm. Ringu first will say, oh, no, The Ring is that. No, they didn't get anything right. Ringu's the best. Well, did you watch or read The Shining first? Because that's another one that's really popular, uh, but veered from its source material and actually made it made Stephen King upset, right? Yes, it did. He, Yeah, we're talking, of course, about the Kubrick adaptation of The Shining, not mm-hmm. the... Not the faithful and yet nigh unwatchable miniseries that was made much later. Um, I read The Shining first and I I feel like those are it's almost like it's two different stories that share some common DNA. And I think both are brilliant. I understand King's objections and I agree that if you're telling the story of the book, Kubrick made some decisions that don't work. Uh, the big one being that that Jack Torrance, the character played by Nicholson, that um, that he comes off way too crazy, way too quickly. And mm-hmm. in the book, it, it's something that you see is built upon his alcoholism and his history of uh, anger management issues that then escalates. Well, there's not a whole lot of escalation in The Shining. It kind of <laughs> he kind of comes off as unhinged from the beginning. And so it's a different story, but I think it's a good story. It's just different. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I I would say that all of these things that we've talked about so far are maybe not Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, are close enough to the original story that they should be called the original story. Just mm-hmm. A different adaptation. There are there are things out there that try to say that they're a, a, a loved story that really aren't. World War Z, The yeah, Watch, yeah. and and I'm gonna say Pete's Dragon, even though Disney owned the story of Pete's Dragon to begin with and had complete right to change it. Their new Pete's Dragon is not Pete's Dragon to me. Oh, um, oh <laughs> right the 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 remake Pete's Dragon. The remake is, Pete's Dragon completely ignores almost everything about the original except for having an orphan and a dragon or is he even an yeah. orphan in the remake he is an orphan okay. yes yes uh but you know world war z has to do with zombies yeah that, and from my understanding okay, so, that's about yeah that's about it so have you read the book yes so you, you know that the book's brilliant the book is yes. more of an observation about how humans cope in the wake of 
a mm -hmm. massive disaster. And honestly, if you read World War Z and you look at how the United States has handled the pandemic, you're like, wow, this is the World War Z is so accurate in how yeah. how these things play out. Um, because it's more of a commentary on things like how bureaucracy can get in the way and mess things up and make a bad situation even worse. Um, and the but movie, it's also the movie is a, a zombie action movie. Yeah. Well, and, and a big thing, like the the story is told from the recollection recollections of a bunch of different people. Right. And it, it's after the zombie, the zombie uh, menace has passed its peak. And now we're on the other side of it. So it's people yeah. thinking back to when it was going into its peak. But from the perspective of the storyteller, the worst has already happened. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got The Watch, which uh, you talked about in a previous episode. Ugh. Trying. Which yeah. is based off of Guards Guards by Terry Pratchett, right? Yeah, it's it's based off the, the Night Watch series of books, but mainly Guards Guards. It's got the... The main storyline is is mostly pulled from Guards Guards with uh, the the onset of a dragon around Ankh Morpork, and um, yeah, it's um, it's so different from the source material. It it shares tiny little bits of of identity with the source material, but it makes so many drastic changes that you lose the spirit. And you start to wonder, like, why would you why would you make these choices? Because every choice you make that gets further away from the source material is alienating the built in audience. But if you are making it for people who are not that built in audience, why would you bother adapting something in the first place? Maybe because they they had an idea that they thought would be similar enough, but they wanted to get a, a chunk of audience automatically. So they they said, we're going to throw in a couple of things so we can call it The Watch so that Terry Pratchett fans will want to watch it, even though we really want to tell our own story. But then, I mean, you know, or you should know going into it that you're going to alienate those fans and thus any reaction you get from them is going to be negative and that that is going to become a very powerful story all on its own is that the fans of the series are rejecting the adaptation you've made. Uh, I think if I watched the watch without ever having read any Terry Pratchett, I would have thought it was very unusual and strange and a little mm -hmm. compelling just because it was unusual, but not particularly well told or interesting. Like, okay. like it's unusual. It's kind of like a David. Don't get on me. David Lynch fans. I think David Lynch's work is brilliant. <laughs> But it's like a David Lynch thing in the sense that you're watching stuff and you're like, this is I'm just trying to get my head wrapped around what's happening. Now, the fact that I've read Pratchett tells me a little bit more about what's going on. But the changes that have been made are so drastic that uh, my knowledge of Pratchett is only somewhat helpful in sussing out mm -hmm. what's happening. And, you know, they leave out entire characters who are really important in the books who don't even appear in the in the show. Um yeah, it, it's one of those that I find particularly perplexing because I can't figure out what your end goal was if you are making choices mm -hmm. that are bound to alienate the fan base. Yeah. So we've talked about some stories that are close enough that they should be titled after their source material. And we've talked about some that are so far away that they really shouldn't. What about Disney? Because Disney rides that line for me of... 
and I know we need to wrap this up, so maybe we can get into this deeper later, but uh, Disney rides that line of just that they changed the original story just enough that I'm like, mm, is it that original story anymore? Like, I gotcha. Yeah. Like, like all the fairy tales. I mean, obviously they take all the hard edges off the fairy tales, right? If you read Grimm's fairy tales, mm-hmm. I mean, it's called the brothers Grimm, right? They're the brothers Grimm, yeah. but they can be pretty grim, grim. <laughs> fairy tales. Uh, you know, people get their feet chopped off and eyes pecked out and stuff. Uh, you don't see that in the Disney stories. I, I mean, Disney for much of its history is known for sanitizing a lot of stories in an effort to create a particular kind of feel, right? Like you can Mm -hmm. see a lot of those classic Disney movies and detect like, yeah, this is all trying to create that sort of sense of wonder and magic. And the bad guys are easily identifiable and they are bad. And the good guys are really, really good. And you know the good guys will win in the end and nothing terrible will happen to anybody that's permanent except the bad guy who will probably die. Um, Yeah. That's about it. Uh, I'm okay with it because I know going into it what I'm going to get. Like, I know (laughs) that Disney's not going to break the mold on that. Um, You're not going to have some morally ambiguous characters in there for the most part. No one's going to get their eyes pecked out. Uh, Mm Mm-hmm. If I want that, I can go back and read the original fairy tales. So I I just accept it as a totally different take on the basic plot points of a story. Um, In some some cases, it gets way the heck away from the basic plot points there. You're like, okay, yeah, you've got some dwarves in here, but this is not Snow White. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, um... Now we're going to adapt some things of our own. Uh, and I don't know if the, either of our adaptations will live up to their namesakes, but we're going to give it a go. But first, we're going to take this quick break. guys we're back and as you know or maybe you don't we like to mash up two different properties into one and find out what happens and this week uh i chose the properties because i had a joke in my head and i decided that i needed to write a whole piece around it. by the way this is how my brain works i had to write a whole piece around the joke so we are combining the world of of Uh, Gotham City, not Gotham the series, but Gotham City from DC Comics, the home of characters like Batman, Joker, Arkham Asylum, and all that kind of stuff, with Mm -hmm. The Veggie Tales, a beloved cartoon series featuring uh, talking vegetables and fruits that tell Bible stories and sing songs. And and sing awesome, awesome songs. Um, So since you have this brilliant joke. Oh, it's terrible. You're going to hate it. And you throw you threw me under the vegetable cart for this one. Um, I'm going to I'm going to go first. Okay, get it Uh, over with. Yes. So this is Bat Tales, Positive Fables for a Caped Crusader, Chapter One. Yes, it's an anthology. All right. Batman was feeling blue. You see, the denizens of Gotham City were feeling that their hero was far too violent and dark, leaving Caped Crusaders approval ratings at a nadir with women and children. 
Batman's PR person insisted that he clean up his image. He had to start doing PSAs about brushing your teeth and eating your vegetables. They even took away his weapons. So instead of batterings, he would throw bananas. It was torture, but it was working. However, Poison Ivy got wind of this and she decided that she would not have this. In Gotham's darkest days, people would sorrow eat fast food left and right and her plants were allowed to thrive. But now, now that Batman and Gotham were cleaning up their act and their diet, her plants were being murderously killed. Yes, murderously killed. She broke into Wayne Mansion, well, the Bat Cave, Wayne Mansion, uh, one of those two, and animated all of the plant matter in Batman's fridge to attack him. There was a lot. Batman had been gifted tons of produce baskets, more than he could eat from all of his goodwill work in, in, in the agriculture business. Slowly but surely, because they don't really have legs, the animated vegetables and fruits began to creep up on Batman, seeking to bludgeon him to death with their soft, almost ripe bodies. Batman turned and saw the produce just in time. He was just about to make guacamole out of them when he remembered that he was on a broadcast to a bunch of children, teaching them about playing outside. So begrudgingly, he decided he'd try to make peace with these animated vegetables uh, instead of making a massacre, and he addressed the sentient flora. He thought, surely if these things are good for you, then they must be good at heart too. He explained that he was just trying to make the world a better place and not kill them. And the veggies and fruits actually being rather selfless liked this. So much showed that they asked to join Batman on his quest. He may not have weapons, but he did have good nutrition for the body and the mind. And that is just as dangerous. And soon, Batman took forth with his new arsenal. He had the Grapes of Wrath, which would incapacitate villains with their smell because, as you know, they never take a bath. A killer tomato named Bob, who would shut down any bad joke, along with French peas, who would incapacitate you with bad jokes and laughter. He also had a cucumber who, being mostly water, had a psychic connection with the water buffaloes at the Gotham Zoo. And together, they vowed to fight crime the right way by speaking kindness and goodness and reason into the villains. And surprisingly, the villains were so thrown by this that it worked for a time. That was a really good week. (laughs) Well, I can tell you that my version goes as dark as yours went bright. Oh, no. Yeah, get ready. I'm going to ruin it. (sighs) In my version of Gotham City, there is no Batman. Bruce Wayne, rather than setting out to avenge his slain parents, goes into a deep despair, eventually emerging but being a shell of who he was meant to be, idly spending his time and living off his inheritance and irritating his butler, Archibald. However, also in Gotham, there lives Barbara Gordon, daughter to Jim Gordon, the police commissioner. Despite her father's best efforts to protect his daughter from the grim realities of Gotham, young Barbara realizes at an early age how the world works. She shares her father's convictions and has a strong moral compass, but is also frequently distressed at how corrupt much of Gotham's system is, with criminals frequently bouncing out of the justice system due to bribery and intimidation. She sees the need for a hero. Ever since she was young, Barbara was interested in gymnastics, but as she considers the possibility of the life of a vigilante, she begins to seek out other training. She convinces her father she needs to learn martial arts and how to handle weapons, 
pragmatically pointing out that since he is a police officer and he has a revolver, it would be irresponsible of him not to have her learn how to be responsible with such things. After much training and consideration, Barbara is sitting in her room, contemplating what persona she should take on as the vigilante Gotham needs. She has to protect her father, after all, and criminals are a superstitious, cowardly lot. As she thinks, she overhears her own name being sung on the television. It's a children's program that's on, just something she had on in the background. Moreover, it's all about biblical stories, something she hadn't paid much attention to, but now seemed to really hone in on that moral compass, and the song has convinced her. Barbara would become the manatee. Yes, a oh, flipping, no. somersaulting, kicking and punching manatee of justice. She makes a big lumpy suit and sets out to confront the lowlifes of Gotham. While on patrol, she happens to overhear some common street criminals chatting about a new force in town. It's Mr. Nezer, a veritable crime boss who is shaking up the criminal underworld in Gotham, taking territory and assets from other families. But perhaps even more feared than Mr. Nezer is his assistant, Mr. Lunt. A native of Gotham, Mr. Lunt is known for his sadistic streak, with a reputation of slicing open victims and stuffing them with decorative gourds. Similarly, the serial killer Victor Zaz, known for peeling his victims, has joined forces with the criminals. Barbara begins to research Nezer and Lunt, doing some detective work as she learns more about their plans and influence. Along the way, she encounters a young man dressed as a pirate. His name is Larry. Larry, smitten with Barbara, the manatee, proves that he can actually handle himself pretty darn well in a scuffle, as the two are discovered by some criminals on the streets of Gotham. Larry mostly seems to be effective by accident, but Barbara proves she is more than capable of handling herself. And so, Barbara Manatee and Buccaneer Larry form a dynamic duo capable of putting crime in its place. Their first true victory is when they defeat one of the three Scallion brothers, but the other two are already making plans on how to bust their baby brother out of Arkham. To be continued? Question <laughs> mark? That is the gritty reboot of Larry Boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, so for those who have no idea why I made that joke, it was just for Ariel. Uh, you need to, if you are unfamiliar with VeggieTales, you need to look up the video Barbara Manatee. And that is, is why I wrote that joke. <laughs> I do love manatees and I do love VeggieTales. So totally worth Bringing my beloved vegetables into the grimness of reality. I, 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 I bet I lost at least 90% of our audience <laughs> who are like, why is she a manatee? But the other 10% absolutely adore you, that's, Jonathan. That's probably true. So if you adore Jonathan and his Barbara manatee joke or have ideas about adaptations yourself and, and what you think does and doesn't qualify or, you know, news that you want to talk to us about, you can reach out to us. How can they do that, Jonathan? Well, the best way now is through our email. That would be lnc at iheartmedia.com. We have a website that is largenerdroncollider.com where we post episodes and show notes. You can leave comments there as well. We've also got our sites on, uh, we've got Twitter, that's LNC underscore podcast, and we are on Facebook and Instagram, that's Large Nerdron Collider. So you can reach out in any of those ways. If we really like what you have to say, you could be uh, referenced on a, on a future episode. And um, also remember, if you enjoyed this show, to like, 
on whatever platform you're listening to us on and recommend it to a friend. Uh, Word of mouth really helps. We're starting to see growth every week, which is fantastic. We Mm -hmm. love to see it because we really want this to become a conversation, not just us talking to you, but talking with you. And we want to hear from you. Yeah. Uh, And so we hope we hear from you. But until next time, I'm Ariel Caston. And I am the knight. The Large Nerdron Collider is a production of iHeartRadio and was created by Ariel Kasten. Jonathan Strickland is the executive producer. The show is produced, edited, and published by Tari Harrison. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.